Hey, thanks for tuning in to the First Monroe podcast. For more information on our church, visit firstmonroe.com. We hope you enjoy. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn or click to Genesis chapter 3. What a good Mother's Day sermon on sin and judgment. There'll be something in there for mothers as well this morning. And I'm not going to say it's women's fault that why we sin, so I'm not going to go there. I would say this, and you'd probably agree with me, the past two or three weeks or so have been pretty rough for northeast Louisiana uh, with tornadoes that have hit. Uh, obviously, as the tornadoes hit and just destroyed a lot of Ruston, and then this past week on Wednesday, I don't know if you saw the report, they uh, spotted some eight tornadoes on Wednesday. And so our, our area has been really affected by storms lately. Uh, I don't know if, if you saw this, if you're on Facebook, but they posted this on several different sites. But there was a drone footage of Ruston, and right after Ruston got hit, I don't know if you saw this drone footage, but uh, basically this drone flew over Ruston, and as it flew over, it really just showed all the devastation. So whether it was uh, gas stations, houses, trees, I mean, you just couldn't help but look and just see the devastation that took place in Ruston. Uh, similar, even there's been pictures and people that posted past this past Wednesday of all the different things. Chad uh, McClurg that's here at our church, his house was hit by a tree. And, and so it's just been a lot of, there's just been a lot of aftermath that, that, that's really been effective. Not only just the heartbreak of everything that's happened, but then think of all the things that are going to have to happen now, all the money it's going to cost, all, all the people displaced from their homes, all people that have lost things, people's houses have been flooded, like all these kind of things. And I was just thinking about just to think of the picture of not only the, the horrible of the storm, but also to think of the aftermath of the storm and having to pick your life up and all these things from these storms. And I, and I was thinking about that picture. I think that picture fits perfectly in Genesis chapter 3 at the end. Last, last time we were in the book of Genesis, we saw the fall, the temptation, as Adam and Eve gave into temptation and they sinned. And when we pick up in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, what we'll see is the aftermath of the fall. It's similar of the way that a tornado would come in and completely devastate everything that's passed the same way with sin. That when sin enters our life, it literally wreaks havoc in every area of our life. That it leaves this... It, it's some that we talked about last time. Is That's the problem with sin is it promises us to give us something it can never give us. But the problem is it costs us more than we want to pay. That it costs us so much... And as we get to this chapter, it's really kind of a depressing chapter. So I'm sorry for Mother's Day that we're in a depressing chapter. But, but it's depressing because we see this just aftermath and the cost and the consequences and all these things of sin and what it's caused in Adam and Eve's life, but not just in their life, but it also pictures our life. That the same thing we see that happens in Adam and Eve's lives, the same thing happens in our life when we give in to sin, when we rebel against God. The shame and guilt and sin and separation and consequences enter into our life. And so really what I want to do this morning is I want us to give us just, we're just going to have one point, which you're like, great. That means the sermon's going to be like five minutes. And so um, it probably won't be five minutes, but um, we'll just really have one point this morning, one application uh, that we'll see run through this whole thing. And it's really how Adam and Eve are supposed to respond to the aftermath of the fall. And it's the same way that you and I are supposed to respond. When we've fallen into sin, this is the pattern and the way that we're to respond. So here is what the main idea is this morning, and it's this. It's the challenge. Confess your sin and receive God's provision of grace. 
What we see and over and over again in this passage in Genesis chapter 3 and we'll see in our life that after the aftermath of sin has happened in our life, here's what we're called to do. To repent and confess our sin and humbly by faith receive the provision that God's given us by His grace. It's the pattern you see in Genesis chapter 3 and it's the pattern you will see all throughout Scripture that we're to confess our sin and receive God's provision of grace. So, you should have your Bible turned to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, We'll start in verse 8, and then we'll read through the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. It's right after they've eaten of the fruit. It says this in verse 8. He says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It says, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and so I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in the pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground for which you were taken, you are for dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord said, Behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Now at least he reached out his hand and take the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent out from the garden of Eden to work the ground of which he was taken. He drove out the man in the east of the garden of Eden and placed a share of there and the flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree. Of life. So here's what we'll do this morning. We'll see this main idea, the main challenge is to confess your sin and receive God's provision of grace. But here's how we'll do it. We'll basically just walk through the text. I just want us to walk through, see all the things, and, and see how this we get to this application. So the way that I've done this, hopefully it doesn't confuse you, is that these aren't points, but they're kind of like categories. So as we walk through the text, similar to as there would be categories and headings in your scripture, I've kind of given categories so that we can walk through and understand where we are. All right, so number one, Heading is this, hiding from God. So right when we get to this text, they have just eaten of the fruit. They've just recognized their nakedness. And here's what begins to happen. It says that they begin to take fig leaves. They begin to sew them together to hide themselves and to cover themselves. As we said last time, this is the first time they felt shame and guilt. And so they recognize their nakedness. Their eyes have now been opened. That that fear and sin and evil. All these things are now a part of their life. And so they've They've devised this plan to basically to cover themselves and hide themselves. Well, as this happens, it says they begin to hear God walking toward them. Now, this was something probably that God did. He would go in the cool of the day and walk with them and talk with them and have a relationship with them, something that's beautiful. 
But it says something really strange. It says this in verse 8. It says that when they heard it, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that crazy? That they just hid themselves from God. I want to ask a question just for us to think about is why in the world would they hide from God? I mean, really, when you think about it is God has been nothing but good and perfect. God has created them and given them everything. Nothing God has given that has not been good. And yet you see them hiding from the presence of God. Actually, this is a pattern. You see this also in the book of Jonah. A similar thing happens. It says the text says that he ran or hid himself from the presence of God. My question is, why would you do that? And here's why, because I think of this scripture since Psalm 1611. It says this, For you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If in your presence is fullness of joy, why would anyone run from that? Why would anyone run from something that brings nothing but fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore? They hid themselves from God. Now, we would see this. This is a result of sin. Is because God is holy, and they now see their sinfulness, their guilt, and their shame, and now they feel fear. They sense fear, and so they want to hide themselves from God. Now, we would say this, and just to let everybody know, it would be a very, very, very silly, silly thing to hide from God. Because you can't. It's similar to this. I don't know. Um, my daughter Piper likes to play uh, hide-and-seek. If you've ever had little kids, you've known this, is that kids aren't the best at the game hide-and-seek. Um, Piper's getting better. She's, she's figuring out better places to hide. But when we first started playing hide-and-go-seek, like she would literally hide in the middle of a room, just go up against the wall and cover her eyes. And she thought, if, if, if I can't see them, they can't see me. And, of course, it's been a learning process to teach her that's not a good hiding place. We can see you in plain sight, and it takes a little while for for kids to get that. But what's funny is, is you and I do the exact same thing. That for some reason we think that in darkness or whatever, whatever we could do, that we can actually hide from God. While we would look at a kid and say, well, that's really silly to think that you can hide from God. For some reason, you and I try to do that all the time. That really, this process of Adam and Eve taking loincloths to cover themselves and then taking and trying to hide themselves from God, it, isn't, it didn't stop in Genesis chapter 3. You and I are doing the exact same thing today. That for some reason, we think that we can put on a facade, we can tidy ourselves up, we can, whether it's on social media, make ourselves look more than we really are. Uh, we maybe try to do really good things to hide maybe the guilt and shame that we feel. And so we're really good at trying to, to, to sew together fig leaves for our life, to try to hide our shame and our guilt and our pain and those things. And, we, and I'll be honest with you, we've gotten really good at it. We can go to church and be like, how's everything? Great. Awesome. When really there's a lot of pain and shame and guilt and things that we're walking through in our own life. And similar to Adam and Eve, if we've gotten really good with being able to clothe ourselves or hide ourselves and also to really hide ourselves from God. And I want to ask a question this morning just to think about it. We'll move to the next section. But is just to think about this is, are you running from God? Like even this morning to think about, um, maybe you're even here this morning and you, have, you, you want nothing to do with God. You've heard about it. Maybe you're just here because your mom told you to be here. And you're like, I really don't want to be here. And I really don't care about God. 
And maybe you're trying to run or hide from God. I just want to say this as graciously as I can, is you can try your best to run and hide from Him, but you can't. Also think about this, of not even, even if you're, a, or even if you're a believer, of there are even ways in my own life that I try to hide from God. Even as a preacher. Uh, you might say, well, he preaches every Sunday, and he's at church every Sunday. He can't run from God. You know, there's many times where maybe you sense God feeling you to do something, or you feel God sense you to change something, and you're like, you know what, God, I kind of want to hold you from a distance from a little bit. It's because if I get too close, if I spend too much time with you, then you're really going to start messing with my life. And so there's a tendency for us, even, even as believers, sometimes to distance ourselves and want to hide ourselves from God. I don't want Him too close. Like, I want Him close enough to bless me and give me things and forgive me. I just don't want Him too close to me where He begins to actually meddle with my life. And so it, whether you are a non-believer or a believer here, we all can have this idea of running from God. It didn't stop here. The next section is the blame game. So what happens is after they've hid themselves, God begins to ask a question. And he asks this question in in verse 9. He calls out to the man and he says, where are you? What a great question from God, right? You think he would probably ask the question of why are you hiding? But he doesn't ask that question. He says, where are you? Now, we would ask this question, why is God asking where are you? Like, doesn't God know where Adam and Eve are? Well, yes, God knows exactly where they are. But he's not asking them so that he will know where they are. He's wanting to ask this question so that they know where they are. Meaning this, here's why he asked the question, where are you? Is he wants them to recognize how far sin and rebellion and disobedience to what he has said, where is it taking them? He wants them to see their location, not just their physical location, but spiritually where they are. He wants them to see, hey, this is where it's gotten you. Because you disobeyed, because you sinned, because you rebelled against what I said, look at where it got you. You are now in separation and in sin and in guilt and in shame and in fear. And look at where sin has taken you. He wants them to recognize where they are because it's this reality of if they're really going to confess their sin and confess their wrongdoing before God, they have to recognize where sin has taken them. We see this same idea really in the secular realm in the idea of of addiction recovery programs. I don't know if you've ever dealt with addiction recovery programs, uh, but one of the first steps in addiction recovery is that you have to admit you have a problem. That this is one of the first steps that if you're going to receive help in addiction, whatever addiction may be, you first have to acknowledge that there is a problem. If you don't acknowledge there's a problem, then you can't begin addiction recovery. AA, the first thing that they say in AA is this, is that we admit we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. The five stages of addiction recovery say this, the first stage is marked by growing awareness that there is a problem. Here's the greatest issue, is that if you don't recognize your need for God, you won't call out to God. This is why God has to get us to a place and why many times, whether it's a question or whether it's circumstances in our life, that we have to come to the end of ourself. We have to come to this realization that sin has led me to a place that is not good. Sin has led me to a place where maybe I have believed the deception or believed the lie, but sin, it has never taken me where I wanted it to take me. And what needs to happen in this, and this is why he's asking this question, is before they ever can confess their sin, they have to recognize where sin has taken them. Where it has brought them to is similar to our life. We have to recognize where sin has taken us. 
Then Adam answers, look down in verse 10, he answers this, and he says, I heard the sound of you in a garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He doesn't answer the question. He actually answers the question if he were to ask, why are you hiding? And then God looks at him and said, well, who told you that? Obviously, God knows why. And then he says this, have you eaten of the tree in which I told you not to eat of? As God asks this question, he is wanting a response of confession. That they did, he did indeed eat and do the things that he did, but they do everything but confess and just blame everybody else. Classic blame game. The criminal has now become the victim. Look what he says, verse 12. The man said, the woman. It's her fault. Immediately throwing under under the bus, right? Looks at Eve and says, it's your fault. But then he goes a step further, and he actually blames somebody bigger. He says this, the woman whom you gave me. God, really? If you wouldn't have given me Eve, none of this would have happened. That's getting strong. It's one thing to blame his wife. Now he's blaming God. Go a few chapters over. He's really excited when he sees Eve for the first time. He's not complaining that God brought Eve to him at all. But now he's saying this, well, if you wouldn't have given me Eve, none of this would have ever happened. He is, in a sense, is blaming God for why he is where he is. Eve doesn't do any better. He actually does admit, he says, I ate, but it's really hidden behind all this blame, and she does the exact same thing. Asks the same question, do you realize what you've done? And the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me. The devil made me do it. And then I ate. I would say this. If I can dig into this just for a second, do we see this more in society today than ever? That people refuse to take responsibility for their own actions. This is one of the things that runs absolutely rampant in our culture today is that no one wants to take ownership for things that they've done. It's always someone else's fault. It's my boss, it's my spouse, it's my family. Anything that we ever do in our life is that we always want to place the blame somewhere else except for the person who the blame should be on of ourself. I remember hearing a, a pastor told me this one time. We were talking about marriage, and he was saying that he was like in a marriage relationship. He says, he says whether it's a good one or bad one, he says, wherever in counseling, he said, one of the things I've noticed in marriage is that usually the blame always is like, well, if my spouse gave me enough attention or if they love me in this way, if they spent more time, all, all these kind of things. And he says, ultimately what needs to happen is instead of first saying, well, if my spouse would do this, our marriage would be better. He says, actually, what you need to start with is what am I doing that's not helping our marriage? Don't even start with your spouse. Actually, start with yourself. D- don't even start there. You say, well, what am I not doing that I need to be doing to improve the marriage? And this applies to everything. I would say this. We love to blame everything but the true person responsible for our sin, and that's us. The devil made me do it. I grew up, the way I grew up was hard. It was my environment. I was dealt a bad hand. The sin was just right in front of me. I deserve to be a little selfish sometimes. It's my parents. It's my brother. It's my sister. We can go on and on and on. But the reality is this. There's only one person that's responsible for your sin, and that's you. This is the problem with sin, is that we want to literally blame everything else except ourselves. You know whose fault it was? It was Adam's. Whose fault it was? It was Eve's. Did the devil deceive? Absolutely. Did God give Adam Eve? Absolutely. Did Eve 
ask and incite Adam? Absolutely. But who's the blame to go to? It's the person that ate it. And it's the same thing. I need to move on to the next one. I can maybe get fired up here. I just look in all of our life. We're really, really good with shifting the blame. And here's the thing. If we ever want to get to the place of true repentance, the place where we truly acknowledge our sinfulness and our wrongdoing to God, then you have to take ownership of your sin. It's not anybody else's fault except yours, except mine. And the problem is our society does not help with that at all. And so this reality of this blame game, you see this this begins to take place of really what he's calling for them is to confess their sin and all they want to do is place it on something else or someone else. If we ever want to get to the place where we recognize our own sin, then we have to take ownership of it. The next one, uh, the next subcategory is three. I want you to see is the consequences. The next section leads to this truth that none of us like, and that is this, is there's consequences to our sinfulness. When you sin and when you disobey and when you rebel against God, there is judgment and there are consequences for our actions. If you remember this back in chapter 3 at the beginning, this is one of the temptations that Satan entices is this thing of there's no consequences. You won't, you won't really die if you eat of this tree. You won't, you won't die. Well, What he's trying to say is there's no consequences for sin. When you get to this, there are absolutely consequences that you and I have to face because of our sin. There are consequences here. There's spiritual consequences of separation from God. We see that relationships are destroyed, fear, shame, guilt. There are consequences over and over again because of our sin. And so what he begins to do is lay out consequences for all the people involved. So he starts with the serpent. Look what he says. He starts this in verse 14. He says, because you've done this, you are cursed above all livestock. Now, we don't know what the serpent looked like before this, but we sure know what it looks like after. If you've ever seen a snake, just stay clear, right? Snakes are gross. They're scary. No one's ever like, that's a cute snake. You know what I'm saying? Maybe if it's like a bright green one. But outside of that, I mean, no, no one likes a snake. And in a sense, what he's cursing, he says, all the days of your life, you will slither on your belly. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. But then, recognize this, this wasn't just a serpent. That actually, it was something behind this serpent. And it was Satan. And so he begins to say this in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman. That there will be warfare for all time until God corrects it, until God makes it right between Satan and between all the descendants of Eve. We see this in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says this, God came to give us life, give us abundant life. But he says this, that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. This is exactly what he does to Adam and Eve. Satan wants to attack the one thing that bears God's image. He is prideful against God, and so what he sought to destroy was the very the pinnacle of God's creation. The only thing that bared that bear God's image was us, and so what does he do? He comes to attack. God is not neutral toward you, or excuse me, Satan's not neutral toward you. That there's warfare, and he says this, there will constantly be evil and warfare between you, and then he predicts this. He says this, he says, but your offspring and her offspring, he says, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it seems kind of weird that he's saying this, but already here's what I love is even in the consequences and judgment, there's still, you you see God's grace here. That what takes place here is this is a hint toward Jesus that there's going to come someone from 
the descendants of Eve that will rise up and one day crush Satan completely. We know that Satan will deliver a blow, but it won't be a destructive blow like this offspring will do. And this is all hinting toward Jesus. Then he moves to the woman. He says this, you will have great pain in childbirth. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. This is one of the curses of the fall. There will be great pain in bearing children. If you are a mother and you have ever had kids, you can thank Eve. Okay? Uh, It is, and really the way this text lays it out, is it's not only just in the actual act of giving birth, but also even the act of before that, of the baby. And it's not just speaking toward physical pain, but also emotional pain. If you know this, if you've ever, if you're a woman or if you're a man, to recognize that it's not just, there's uncomfortable, emotions run really high, there's postpartum depression, there's a lots of things that go into bearing children that's really difficult and really hard. And he says, hey, this is one of the things that will happen, is that there will be great pain in bearing children. Then he goes on to say this, that there will be great pain that you will bring forth children, meaning this, if not only just the act of giving birth, but also in raising children is going to be really hard. If I can comfort any mom today, being a mom is extremely hard. That's a result of the fall. A couple, I guess a month or so ago, I'd had uh, the stomach bug. Thought it dodged our family, but Kirsten got the stomach bug. When I had the stomach bug, you know, it was fine. Uh, everything seemed, you know, I, I wasn't able to, I was like locked away, but it, everything seemed to operate fine at our house. And then when Kirsten got sick, things didn't operate the way that things needed to operate. That when mom goes down, um, it kind of throws everything off. And that's one of the things like, and I don't know if, if guys, if we don't say it enough, but moms deserve so much credit because of all the things they go through. I mean, Piper is funny. I think it's kind of funny. Kirsten doesn't think it's funny. But usually like at night or whatever, when she wants to use the bathroom, it's, she only wants her mother to take her. She does not ever, and it's like, oh, let your dad, she doesn't want me. She wants mom. It's just something about kids. They, they, they long for their mom. And this reality of being a mom is a struggle. And I would say this for a lot of moms even out there, and I said this earlier, is that sometimes as a mom you probably feel inadequate or you feel like I'm not a very good mom or you may feel like I'm not doing a very good job. Let me just say this. Every woman for all of time has felt that way. Why? Because this is part of the fall. Is that there would be great pain in bearing forth and raising children. This is a, this is a, so let me just say this. In the moments that you feel like you fail as a mother, just, this is reminding you of the fall. This is reminding you that we live in a very fallen world. This is really hard. And so, mothers, I I hope you find grace today. Not that everyone, everybody's going to post pictures today, and it's going to be probably a beautiful picture. It's not going to show the struggle before and after with your kids or anything, but it's going to be a perfect picture. But this reality of being a mom is really hard, and it's a part of the fall. There's also another side of this. It says this, not only just in children, but in relationships. He says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is really difficult and it's really hard, uh, a part of the fall that Eve, because in a partnership, she sought to take leadership. And because of that, there was a penalty for that. And here's what one author said, and we actually see this lived out in today in our society. And this is a result of the fall. This one writer said this, 
the woman at her worst would be a nemesis to the man, and the man at his worst would dominate women. And I would say this, you could see this for all of time, is that this is what, as a result of sinfulness, as you've seen this play out, is relationships have ultimately been destroyed. You would say, why is there all this stuff about equality, men, women? It's because this is a result of the fall. Women at their worst will be a nemesis for man, and a man at his worst will seek to dominate women. And this is something that you have seen all throughout history. And this is a sign reminding us of this is the part of the fall. And only in Christ can this ever be restored. This is why when you turn over and it begins to speak toward marriage and relationships, it's only in knowing Jesus that this thing can be made right. Last is he addresses the man, the consequences of the man. And he basically says, here's what's going to happen is you're going to work, but it's going to be really hard. Work, we've said this before, work existed before the fall. Work now exists, and it's really hard. Do you, can I say this? You know what reminds me of the fall? Laundry. <laughs> Laundry is a result of the fall. Here's why. And Kirsten and I joke about it all the time. You do a load, you wash it, you dry it, you clean it, you fold it, and then you got more waiting on you. And it's an endless cycle that never ends. Here's the result of the fall. There will always be work, and there will always be work. You, when you finish something, there will be something else. There will be another project. There will be another thing. There will always be something. That's what he says here. That there will constantly be something that you are always doing. It will never stop. Actually, it will stop when you're dead. Man, what great encouragement, right? He says, when you're dead, then you can rest. But until you rest, until you go back to dust, you were made of dust, you'll go back to it. But before then, everything that you seek to do will be work, and it will be hard. Man, you're like, why did they eat that fruit? Because, I mean, just think about how how this has made life so difficult. And I would say this for all of us, (coughs) is that we hate consequences, this is why we blame. This is why we hide. This is why we do. It's because we don't want to face our consequences. I remember having this friend in college one time, and basically his dad was like giving him an allowance every month and all this kind of stuff, and he was uh, at school and in college, and he started just doing horrible things and just totally not doing what his parents asked. And so his parents says, okay, well, we'll just start pulling all our money. Like, you just figure it out. Well, he got really mad about that and was like, all right, well, I guess I better clean up my act so that I can get money. And so he started cleaning up his act, but what's funny is that his parents still didn't give him money. And I remember he told me this one time, he says, James, I don't get it. He said, I said I was sorry. Why don't they start giving me money again? I said, well, I don't know if that's how it works. Just because you say you're sorry doesn't still alleviate the consequences that you face. And I would say this for a lot of us. I'm thankful God is gracious, but this reality is that when we sin and when we disobey, there are consequences that we have to face. I would say for a lot of us, and this is difficult, is sometimes we want to repent and confess our sin, not because we're actually sorry about our sin. We just don't want to deal with the consequences of it. Let me just say this, then I will move on to the last one. There's a tendency for us in our sinfulness when we deal with consequences is to think this about God. That's not fair. Let me just say this in our judgment and in our consequences because of our sin, ultimately separation from God and then the way that that begins to play out in our world, is that God is completely just and completely good and completely fair in every single one of these things. God is good, God is fair, and God is perfect and just in giving all of these. 
think that's a, a result of the fall is we're like, well, that doesn't seem fair. There are times in our life we deal with our consequences of sin and we have this attitude, that's not fair. This reality is you and I deserve nothing. Because of our sinfulness, we deserve justice and judgment upon our life. That's really sad, and if I stayed there, then I would leave you with not very good hope. But the chapter ends with a lot of hope, and so the last section is this, his provisions of grace. What he does at the end of of this chapter in verse 20, he says, The man calls his name, his wife's name Eve, and she was the mother of all living things. And it says this in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now this may seem like very insignificant verse, but this verse is humongous in displaying God's grace. You may not see the word grace here in Genesis chapter 3, but understand that there is littered all throughout this chapter God's infinite grace and his provisions of grace that he have provided. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin and their shame with lifeless leaves, and what God shows us is it notice that it came, his covering that he provides for them comes from an animal, meaning this, that truly in order to, to cover our shame and our guilt, something has to die. A life for a life. In order for our sins to be covered, something has to die. This theme will run this course through the entire scripture and it will climax in the cross. That the only way that you and I can truly be forgiven of our sins is someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to incur the death. Someone has to have the judgment. God can't just wipe away the judgment because he's completely just. Somebody has to endure it. In the Old Testament, the way you see it played out is that there are animals, animal sacrifices that they present and offer to God of his act of worship, but also as an act of forgiveness of their sins. Here's the problem is it was insufficient. These animals could not fully cover their sins, and they had to do it over and over and over and over again. And then what we see in the cross and what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ, the, per- the perfect spotless Lamb of God, lived His life perfectly, that in every way that you and I have failed, every way that you and I in our thoughts and our actions and glorifying God and loving God and loving people, Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all of it. Then he willingly went to the cross, offered up his life in sacrifice and exchange, and endured the entire wrath and judgment of God upon him because of sin. Then he goes to the grave, and three days later he's resurrected. And here's this beautiful truth we see unfold in the New Testament, that anyone who places their faith in the provision that God has provided in the person of Jesus Christ will be covered, will be forgiven for all time and for all eternity. This is the beauty of the, of the gospel, and you see it displayed very clearly right here. Is that the only way that they can truly be covered and forgiven and their shame and guilt be taken away is something had to die. If you want to be forgiven of your sins and restored with God, somebody had to die. Thankfully, as we celebrate, someone did die for you. Someone did go to the cross. Someone did endure the pain and the suffering and the shame of sin and death and the cross and the wrath of God on your behalf. What we see in this is God has provided multiple, multiple provisions of grace. He also provides in verse 22 through 24. He knows this. He knows that they are now knowing good and evil. And he says this, I can't let them eat of the tree of life because if they eat of it, then they will stay in this state forever. And I can't allow them to stay in this sinful state forever. And so what he does, he protects and he guards it. He says, in in a sense, what we say is, is that he says, there is a way to receive life, but it's only on my terms. 
You can't just seize it for yourself because it will result badly. And so he guards it. He says, there's only one way to life. And let me just say this and I'll go back all the way around. The only way that you and I are to respond to God's provisions of grace is confess your sins and receive God's provisions of grace on your behalf. This has been the process from Genesis 3 all the way through. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Acknowledge your sin. Come humbly before God and place your faith in the provisions that God has provided for you. Repent and believe. This isn't just... I hope you see this. This is unfolding right here in Genesis 3. We see the plan of salvation. How do we respond as people to the way that Jesus Christ has given? You, you repent and you believe. How simple is that? And this, here's what I, I hope you see this morning. is that God in His grace, wherever you are, God has provided for you grace. You don't have to incur the penalty of your sin. You don't have to spend eternity separated from God. You do not have to have that judgment upon your life because Jesus has already taken it. But you do have to respond to it. You respond by acknowledging your sin, taking ownership of the things that you have done, the rebellion that you have committed against God, and by faith, you cling to the finished work of Jesus. Just as Adam and Eve, you will be covered. And you will have life. My prayer is that every single person here would receive the provisions God has granted for you. Let's pray. God, this is a heavy chapter. God, we're reminded so much of ourselves. We see ourselves in it, and that's why I think it's so hard. God, many people even this morning may feel shame and guilt and pain and consequences over their sinfulness. God, we see the results in the aftermath of the fall. God, we see it all around us. God, with, God, with evil around us and fear and shame and broken relationships. And God, everywhere we look, even at home, in our society, on the news. God, everywhere we turn, God, we see the effects of sin. God, we see this aftermath that is left in this world. But God, I thank you that you didn't leave us in that. That God, you have provided for us a way of salvation. That you've provided a way for us to be restored. And that God, one day you will make it all right again. God, you will one day remove Satan and all of his demons, Lord, you will remove evil and sin and death completely. And God, that's the hope that we have as believers. God, I pray this morning if there's somebody in this place that God doesn't know you, that's hiding from you, that's running from you, that God, I pray you would, God, I pray you would chase them. God, I pray you would go after them. God, you would keep drawing them, God, with your kindness and your love. God, you tell us in your word that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That, God, I pray your kindness toward us would lead us into repentance. God, I pray for believers in this room that, Lord, if we have fallen into sin in areas of our life, that, God, we would come before you and boldly, God, and in, in humility confess our sins. Lord, you tell us in your word that you are faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. 
God, that we can boldly come before your throne and receive mercy and grace in our time of need. So God, I pray this morning as we respond that God, you would draw us by your spirit and that God, we would indeed respond the way you've called us to do that. So Lord, I pray you'd move during this time and I pray this in Jesus' name. We have our time of response. I think there's two ultimate responses. One is that if you don't know God, if you've never responded to Him, then you would respond with repentance and belief. There's a way for you to salvation, and it's through Jesus. I will be down here uh, during our invitation time. At the end of the service, I'll be down here. We'll have people in the connection room. If you want to talk to someone about that or pray with someone, then we would love to do that. Some of you this morning, you are followers of Jesus. The problem is that sin still exists in our world and maybe you've fallen into sin. Here's what's interesting. The response is still the same. Confess and believe. I love that verse that I was praying and God brought to my mind is that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That the way that God has been so kind to us is meant to lead us into repentance and confession of our sin. Through this sermon, there was multiple, just personally for me, there were multiple things in my life that I had to confess as I was working on this sermon. Things that God, the areas in my life, this is God I'm not doing or I'm not where I need to be or God I'm disobeying you in this area and so God I need to repent of those things. So maybe this morning, maybe it's where you are, maybe it's the steps, maybe you want to pray with someone, but maybe you need to come and confess your sin. Come lay your sin before God. Thankfully, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our wrongdoing. I pray as you to respond to the Lord this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. We can stand.